Hello and welcome to JobPod, the Geographical Association podcast. I'm John Lyon and today I'm talking to James Pollard about climate change and coastal policy. James, it was really interesting because I, I read your article about climate change and coastal policy and geography. Um, and the thing that really caught me was because it was on northern North Norfolk coast and the North Norfolk coast was where I did my dissertation as a university student all those many years ago, in 1975 actually. Everyone remembers the 1976 summer, but the 1975 summer was a really hot summer as well, or at least it was for me in in that area. And I just spent my time camping on the beach, measuring pebbles, looking at beach profiles, checking the longshore drift, and, and really not finding anything new out at all. But I had a great time. Whereas I think this paper that you've done on climate change and coastal policy in the area is, is, is fascinating. It's got a whole, it, it opened a whole new area for me of how to think about how we should better manage the coast. But before I do that, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you've been up to as well as this, which we'll come back to talk about. Sure. So I'm a PhD student at the moment uh, in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge. And um, I've been working for the last three or so years on um, issues surrounding uh, climate change and the kind of coastal impacts that we get uh, as a result of sea level rise, storms, um, and the people and communities that depend uh, on these environments. Um, so it's quite a, a varied research topic, but one that is, I think, increasingly relevant um, as, as we hear more and more about uh, this issues of climate change and how various environmental risks are sort of intensifying. And it's really great to hear that you've also got this connection uh, with this part of, of England's coast, uh, because I think it's one that's kind of a classic coastal case study um, for a lot of people. It's also really dynamic, isn't it? So I, I, if I went back now, and it's a lot of years ago, it would be, it would really have changed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this part of um, the coastline in the UK, um, the reason it's so dynamic is that we get large uh, storm events every so often. And it's because the North Sea is sort of shaped like a funnel. So if we get a, a winter storm, it kind of pushes all the water down into the North Sea. And this can generate higher water levels at the beach. Um, and if there's high winds, really big waves. And it's those sort of high energy processes that drive a lot of change on this coast. So since you were there, I think the coastline itself um, will have been retreating about a metre a year uh, on average. So it could have been set back 50 metres or so. So, yeah, it would look pretty different, I think. I was really surprised, actually, when I read your article about how much it had changed. Where's the source material? I, I, when I looked at, looked at it then, it wasn't clear necessarily where the source material was. Sure. Whether it was offshore or whether it was from the east. Yeah, so um, actually measuring sediment transport is a really difficult thing to do um, because you can't um, go out during a big storm, for example, when um, all of these high wave um, energy is taking place. And the landscape itself is made up of a mix of gravel and sand. So these have slightly different sources. So the sand does, to some extent, um, come down the coast um, from uh, in a westerly direction. But there are some groins further down the coast, so there is a limit on the amount of sand that actually comes to this coastline. Um, and that's part of the reason that it, it is retreating. 
Um, higher up the beach, we get a lot of gravel because um, you get these big waves and they throw the gravel up higher on the beach. Um, and there's really not much of a gravel sediment source. So it has been described as a fossil landscape. So it's not getting many inputs uh, and it's just steadily rolling into a more landward uh, direction. But it's really interesting that you said um, that you were surprised by the amount of change because this is something that we find when we speak to people uh, living along this coast quite a lot. If you ask them whether the coastline has changed, they'll say no, it's been the same for the last hundred years. So some of the work we were doing um, was actually getting out some old historical maps. So in the University of Cambridge uh, Central Library, they've got maps which go back 130 years, so all the way back to, to the 1880s. And from these, you can actually measure hundreds of metres of shoreline change. And if you show these to people, um, it kind of is a way to communicate that this is a really dynamic landscape. That's a really interesting thing to, to do, I think, with, with students as well, with A-level students. Mm. They don't know change because they're not old enough. <laughs> and I'm surprised that old people don't necessarily know change. I suppose in, in some parts of the coastline you would because you've seen your garden disappear. But for everybody else, when it's a bit of a distance, you probably don't notice that, that amount. But for young people, they're not even old enough to have got a perspective on change. So that's really quite dramatic to give them those activities on various different maps. Most of the time they'd expect to do it with, uh, I suppose, digitally now. Yes, but I yeah. think getting the old maps out and doing a bit of tracing, then I'm an old fogey, would be <laughs> a really interesting activity as well in itself, I think, for them to say, there it was, let's put it onto where it is now. Yeah, I think that's a really um, sort of good idea. And in addition to these old maps, we've now got um, vertical aerial photographs taken by planes. Oh, you were talking about those in here, yes. Yeah, so they sort of... Um, they give a bit more information because from a vertical aerial photograph, we can look at the vegetation line um, and we can look at how the beach width has changed as well. Um, and also, to some extent, the land use. All those fields that had half disappeared. Yes, yeah, you... exactly. Yeah, so part of this research was taking some vertical aerial photographs from uh, before and after a major storm surge event. So a storm surge happens, um, like I was saying earlier, when we have one of these uh, winter storms that comes and it piles the water up into the North Sea. What they do is they push all this gravel sediment landward onto the salt marsh. Uh, and this leaves really distinct, um, what they're, they're called overwash fans uh, on the marsh. And they can, in a single storm event, they can be at hundreds of meters in, inland. So it's a really dramatic effect. And because of this gravel being pushed onto the marsh behind, you have a sort of change in land use there. So these fields which used to be um, agriculturally productive um, are now being uh, converted or used slightly differently for things like bird watching, because you get interesting habitats where it's not quite salt water, it's also not quite fresh water, these brackish habitats. Um, so you get a lot of birds. So it's a kind of different way of managing that landscape behind the barrier. Mm. And I suppose if you look at this shoreline management plans further down, they're not going to allow any more sediment to come through because you don't want Cromer or Sheringham or any of the other areas to lose their beaches. Yeah, absolutely. You've got um, sort of protective hard engineering measures um, further down on the coast, which would have been a historic source of sediment. So it means that an area like Blakeney, um, we might expect to see an increase in the rate of shoreline retreat in the future because we've got no um, buffer 
against sea level rise or against those storms. You just have this uh, this fossil mass of sediment which is being pushed landwards. Um, so it's a really good example of, of the way that coasts are interconnected in the alongshore dimension. You can't just um, rock up in one location um, and make all your conclusions based on what you can see. You have to take into account that that wider perspective. And that's an, another learning point, I think, for students who are doing A-level, because they'll see things in isolation if we don't create the conditions for them to understand that what happens over there, what, what 10 miles away? Mm. No, come on, mm. would be, yes, yeah. it could. Um, yeah, the management history of, of this area actually is really, really interesting because the gravel barrier that we have at Blakeney Point, it's an effective um, form of flood defence because it acts as a, a literal barrier between the energetic conditions out to sea and the communities on shore. Um, it means that the Environment Agency of uh, in the past, basically used bulldozers to push it up into a quite a steep, uh, unnatural form. Because if it's steeper, it can be higher, and then it can defend against bigger storms. Um, but they found that actually, what this also does is it increases the risk of breaching. So a breach is when we get a complete break through the barrier, and you get water flowing into the landward locations. So why does that happen? So it's because when you make the barrier higher, um, and sort of steeper, you also tend to reduce the cross-sectional area. So there's there's less resistance to the water flow. If you have a gentler barrier, but it's much sort of wider uh, and has a, a greater cross-sectional area, it's more able to resist mm-hmm. those waters. So it's kind of... Does it change the nature of the breaking wave then? You, what you mean is you've got a gentler angle as the wave approaches. Exactly, right. yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, there's a characteristic of waves called run-up, which is when they break, how high up on the beach they they can reach. And if you have a really gentle profile, uh, the run-up tends to be lower because exactly as you said, it dissipates the energy as the wave comes in and there's lots more friction. Whereas if you have a really steep, artificially managed barrier, uh, there's no chance for the wave to be dissipated. So it has more energy when it reaches the top, and that's when it can cause breaking, uh, breaching. What's the difference then between... I, I would have talked about swash and backwash. So run-up is different. So run-up occurs on the swash. So it's, um, it's a measurement um, of that upcoming wave, and it's the uh, highest point that that wave would reach. So we yes. often talk about run-up in relation to the uh, seawall... Uh, crest or the barrier crest and if the run-up exceeds the barrier crest um, then it's going to push water onto the other side of, of the barrier and once you start to get water coming over the side of the barrier you get erosion and then the barrier gets lower and then during the next uh, wave breaking event it's more likely that it'll be overtopped again right and once you start that process anyway you, you've got to just continue to do it i presume they they do that in hastings they've had a, a giant vacuum clean at one really? time and they, they suck this huge amount and then the last time I was down there they had barges they were bringing in but that was to that was that was to create artificial rock groins they were bringing in some Norwegian granite I think wow. um, as well as the wooden ones but they build the beach up and then it disappears again 
Yeah, this is it. It's a really intensive management regime. And exactly as you say, once you've started to do it, um, you're altering the natural system and you kind of get stuck. So the Environment Agency were doing this really intensive management until 2005. But uh, being quite a sort of progressive organisation and in line with uh, policies across the UK, they decided we don't want to do so much of this hard engineering uh, interventionist management. So they've actually stopped doing any of the bulldozing. Um, So what's going on now is the barrier is adjusting to this new uh, non-interventionist management regime. So um, it's basically changing really rapidly. They're allowing the breaches to form um, and the breaches are actually healing naturally. So yeah, I didn't know they would do that. That's very interesting. interesting. So during the last big storm surge event in 2013, it was during a really stormy winter. Um, when the, I think it was when the jet stream was kind of stuck over the UK, bringing all of these uh, storms towards um, the North Norfolk coast and the UK more generally. Yeah, so there was this big event on the 5th of December and there were two breaches along the barrier. And within two months, actually, um, they'd healed. So this was really positive because it suggested that if we stop in- intervening in this system, um, the natural processes can actually do our job for us almost and it's a trade-off because if you have a lower barrier during higher water levels more water can get over but in terms of how much the beach changes it's likely to be less catastrophic so you can plan for it better and the uncertainty is a bit lower and part of your work is about helping people to plan isn't it really that better understanding allows people to better plan and manage any flood events yes exactly Um, So breaching in particular is one of these key uncertainties because it's very, very difficult to predict. Um, And our work didn't even attempt to try and predict where breaching would take place. It was more focused on how the barrier would change uh, after a breach. Um, So if we can reduce susceptibility to breaching, um, we can be more certain about what is likely to happen during a future storm event. So that was one part of it around this breaching and and storm surges. And then the other part of um, forecasting and thinking about how this um, landscape would change in the future was more about the shoreline change. Although shoreline does change during these large storm events, we tend to think of it um, as a longer term uh, effect. So something you might observe, as we were saying earlier, over a 50 year or so timescale. So some of the work we did was looking at uh, the relationship between sea level rise and uh, shoreline retreat. Um, and it's likely that this landscape will continue to roll landwards closer to the communities as a result of that sea level rise. And the reason for that is that um, the sea level rise kind of sets a baseline. And then on top of that baseline, you have your storm events that push the shoreline backwards. Right. So, um, at, yeah, essentially, as sea level rise accelerates, which it is doing on the North Norfolk coast, you're going to continue to see that barrier roll over. Have you talked to the locals about this? Well, how do they feel about a non-intervention policy? Because quite often with, with rivers, the first thing people will say is, dredge that river. It should be dredged. And then when you read the experts talking about it, they'll say that has that has the same impact really as uh, as perhaps a shoreline management plan that does something further downstream. You dredge the river, it might make it go a little bit faster there, but it could just have worse consequences somewhere else. 
it's it's not they're not understanding the whole as a system they just think do that and it'll be to fix so this is so complicated Uh, they'll see things like that perhaps and go they're doing nothing we've spent all this amount of money and they're doing absolutely nothing Uh, and they get a bad press yeah i mean that's absolutely right it's really really difficult issues um and i think one of the key challenges is that when you've got all these different stakeholders, they all want different things out of the policy. So you can't please everyone. Um, we haven't actually engaged with uh, people on the ground uh, regarding this particular research. But during an, uh, an earlier study that the group uh, in Cambridge did, they, they did a kind of a workshop with different stakeholders around the North Norfolk coast. And they were basically trying to work out um, what do you think we should do about this coastal flood risk problem? Should we uh, think about hard engineering defences, seawalls, um, bulldozing type solutions? Should we um, think about policy change on a more strategic level? Um, or should we focus on communication? Um, and it was interesting that communication came out as the top uh, approach to, to deal with these issues. Part of the reason uh, for that, I think somewhat cynically, is um, cost, because communication campaigns will tend to be uh, cheaper than uh, engineering solutions. But also, I think um, there is value in sort of telling people uh, the science and things like how much the shoreline has changed. And I think from that, you can then build more more informed discussions about what to do uh, with your particular coastline. It's, I think it's really difficult to make a, a critical decision, an appropriate decision, if you haven't got all of the information. And so people will say things like, you should build a seawall, because they don't understand the consequences. And you're right, you can't please everybody, but you need to understand other people's points of view and the other experts. It makes for really interesting A-level teaching, I think, to put it into that sort of position where you don't give them the answer, but you give them the different positions. But they have to have a, they have to have a lot of information, which is why this piece that you've written mm. is so good. They have to have lots of information, otherwise you can't make an informed decision. It's it's just not you've not got enough to be able to know whether the decision you've made is effective or not. But when I've tried that with the um, when I was doing the, the coastal management thing, I, I got in touch with, this was in Hastings actually, I got in touch with the the organisation there and they were willing to give me colour brochures with the answers and they look lovely. Really? But they're not great as, t- as a teaching aid because it's all done. This is the wonderful thing that the, uh, the Environment Agency has done. Here's our glossy brochure. We did this, we did that, we did the other. And the outcomes are there. I give them to a bunch of A-level students and they go, yeah, Okay. <laughs> Rather than how <laughs> you described it, all the data, what decision are we going to make here? Well, this is something we've actually done um, in the teaching uh, in Cambridge as well. We've done a kind of mock-up, call it a multi-criteria analysis. So exactly um, as you're saying, you, you give the students some data and some policy options and then uh, appraise the different options depending on uh, whether you're representing a local shop owner or... Um, someone from the Environment Agency or maybe someone from uh, the regional um, government. And one of the really interesting things that came out of that um, was the role of climate change. And 
I think this is partly because obviously um, issues surrounding climate change have gained a lot of momentum recently. And what we found is that um, interventions such as bulldozing, such as seawalls, um, become infinitely less sustainable when we start to talk about sea level rise and worsening um, flood risk because they can only provide protection for a relatively shorter period of time. Um, so something that our research is focusing on is an alternative and it's known as na nature-based solutions. So this is using things such as salt marsh where, where they occur on the coast, um, more natural gravel barriers or beaches, um, and elsewhere in the world, mangroves or coral reefs to provide protection against uh, flood risk. I've seen a really interesting, just, just a short piece. It was I saw it on Twitter, um, and it, it just had a, a tank, a wave tank, um, and they had before and after. So they, they imitated uh, uh, a mangrove swamp. Sure. Yeah. What it looks like before and what it looks like after. I think we miss a trick in geography. Because some of those simulations could quite easily be done, I think. But I, I don't know how students can get their hands on them if uh, relatively easily. I once went to um, the Institute of Education and they had two fantastic models. The big, about the size of this huge table here, that created waves. And you could do various things with the coastline and predict change. And the other one they had was a long tank. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a wave tank with a beach and you change the the material whether it was coarse or fine sure yeah and we all drew on the side of the tank where we thought the the beach was going to end up so it was great it was a great predictor we were all getting really excited because we were watching the process happening we all wanted to see where ours went I mean, that sounds fantastic yeah and and they got rid of all that stuff at the institute which was such a shame I do think that there's scope for using computer modelling to be able to do the same thing, though. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure that there is much of that. Um, I don't know whether you use anything like that. So I, I've used computer modelling uh, for research purposes, uh, not so much for outreach yet. We, we do have some, uh, they call them sandboxes in the department, and it sounds kind of similar to what you're describing, where you can shape a, a coastal landform. Um, and then you can simulate things like uh, yeah, rain or waves and look at how those processes uh, might play out. Um, we also have a wave flume in Cambridge, so part of our outreach events will involve taking people down to this uh, flume and generating the waves, and we've actually got some North Norfolk uh, salt marsh sort of in place in situ um, to show how it can reduce waves during um, high-energy events. And yeah, we find it's great. When you can actually see these things happening, it helps you to grasp a bit better how valuable these ecosystems are when they occur on our coast. Mm. Because you can't just put a salt marsh anywhere. So it's really important that uh, you protect the locations where uh, salt marshes occur naturally. Which is another decision-making activity that would be great for students. Where can it go? Where can't it go? Why can't it go here? All of those things are... I, I think enhance the quality of A-level teaching when students are having to do that. Have you thought about videoing your um, your wave flume and then putting out short sort of excerpts of what's going to happen next? And you can do predictors. You can say, right, you, you play it for the first minute and 45 seconds. Yeah. The teacher stops it there. What's going to happen next? All of those things for A-level students because they haven't a clue. 
I mean, that sounds great. We haven't done that yet, but yeah, certainly a good idea. And then A-level, they have to do an independent project, which is really quite really? tricky. because the teacher fieldwork. Yeah, yeah. And the teacher's not supposed to give them a title. That's a, been a real change around. It's quite challenging now at A-level. And for, for teachers who've gone through the previous 10 years, they perhaps have not had very much experience and maybe weren't taken out too much themselves. Mm. The new A-level and the new GCSEs brought out a, quite a big change. I think that's great um, to hear, though, because we've been talking about historical maps and aerial photographs, but there are some things that you need to go to the field uh, in order to sort of actually work out what's going on. Mm. Um, so we did some field work uh, at Blakeney, actually, over the summer. And um, we sort of had all our fieldwork strategy sorted out. Um, and we had our, we were going to go and measure the sediment and the sediment size. So it's a sort of a classic uh, coastal study. And um, we had all our sieves. And when we got there, we realized actually the sediment at the coast was far too small for any of the sieves that we had. Um, we'd expected it to be this really big gravel. And it, it just had changed slightly since the last. Um, time we were out there so I think those kind of how you adapt to that being in the field um, and seeing what's actually there on the ground is a really valuable uh, part of the teaching Mm. and it's also I mean it's one of the best things about geography is that you have an excuse to go and actually see some places and interact with them I think and and coastal work is very common because it's quite dynamic and exciting as well Mm. although they don't understand that the coast itself might change. At least you can see things happening when the waves come in and go back out again. You can hear it. And and things like looking at either side of a groin. What's going on here? Why is there, mm. why is there a four-foot drop? Or sometimes in Hastings, a 20-foot drop would you catch me by surprise <laughs> if I was running along the beach and jumping over a groin. Um, so they do do that. Right? They do yeah. go out and do field work. And that would be typical to look at beach profiles and longshore drift. Yeah, and these are all skills that, um, if you then decide to pursue geography further, are still very relevant. Um, So I think that's great. And it's not just an academic exercise. In the UK, obviously, um, as an island, the coast is a really important um, part of our landscape. And um, there's been a recent report published by the uh, Committee on Climate Change, which has talked about the coastal risks in the UK. And I think it's something like 520,000 properties are at risk of uh, flooding. So learning about these issues is critically important if you then want to go and work on them later. And you've looked at flooding and and the impact of, of storm surges uh, as, a, as a group as well, haven't you? Because they tend to be looked at separately if you're not careful so you look at river flooding in one with one hat on and then coastal flooding with another hat on but actually those things are related yeah actually um that's quite a big theme at the moment in in coastal study they call it uh, compound flooding events so um flooding around london is actually a really good example of this where we have the thames barrier and the thames barrier obviously is great at protecting against big Uh, coastal storm surges because you can rotate it up and it provides that protection to the city of London. But the worry is that if we have a big storm surge at a time where we also have a lot of rainfall inland, if we put the barrier up, then the rainfall won't be able to go out uh, and escape to the sea. So you end up sort of creating a flooding problem by trying to protect against both the coastal uh, and the riverine flooding. 
So these compound flooding events, um, sort of an interesting new area of research. I'd not heard of that before, and I, I did find that fascinating. That and I think most work that we would do on the coast doesn't yet take into account enough of the impact of sea level rise. So um, Thames Barrier actually is another good example about how we deal with sea level rise and the uncertainty associated with it, um, because it's not something we have worked on directly, but their approach um, is to take into account uncertainty. Um, And the way that they do that is they'll monitor the rate at which sea level uh, is rising. And before you get to that critical stage where you start to have issues with flooding, um, there are a series of plans to actually uh, change barrier or think of new solutions. So rather than waiting for the big disastrous event to happen, you actually sort of preempt it. So what's the future then? What's the future for Blakeney? Where does it go next? Um, so the key drivers on this coast, it's going to continue to relax um, after that termination of interventionist management. So there's no more bulldozing. So it's going to continue to respond um, to that change in management regime. Um, the other key driver is sea level rise. So as, as the sea level rises, um, we have parts of the beach being impacted by waves, which uh, were not being impacted before. And that drives this uh, onshore retreat of the barrier. Will that onshore retreat uh, progress at the same rate as sea level rise so that, so that it won't get overtopped and flooded? It'll just get pushed further and further inland. So that's the sort of conceptual model. Um, but there are some complicating factors. Uh, one of them is that towards the far end of Blakeney Point, uh, where a lot of the seals are, you can go on a really nice seal trip out to the end of Blakeney Point. But it's very sandy. And as a result, we've got some big dunes up to 15 metres high. And they can't really roll over in the same way that the rest of the barrier can. So uh, a big uncertainty is what's going to happen to that end of the point with a become detached or abandoned relative to the rest of the barrier? Um, Will those dunes just be eroded away? Uh, So that's one key uncertainty. The other thing is geology. So we have different parts of the coast are more or less resistant to erosion. And it's possible that you could have areas um, where waves and energy become focused, and therefore you could get more breaching in certain areas, which could potentially promote barrier um, disintegration and breakdown. I don't think that's too likely on Blakeney because um, we also have a big salt marsh uh, behind and that gives a bit of stability. So that's a sort of buffer to stop it shifting so yeah. so quickly. Yeah, we say it reduces the uh, accommodation space of the barrier. So it reduces the space which the barrier would move into um, because you've got to roll over this salt marsh as well. Right. And actually, if you go down to Blakeney after a big, big storm event, you can see the salt marsh appearing on the other side, on the seaward side of the barrier, uh, the old fossilised salt marsh as the barrier rolls over it. So we can, uh, overall, we would expect the barrier to continue to roll landward, uh, but there is, it's likely that it will do so at different rates and different cross-shell positions. The extent to which it will continue to provide flood risk is something that we actually have been looking at through some numerical modelling. Because obviously, if we're thinking about future change, uh, we need to have sort of a way to, uh, we can't just rely on past data sets. And numerical modelling is a way to feed in future sea level rise scenarios, future storm events, and see how the barrier responds to that. 
Will that be done with computer modeling? Is that how you, you yes. work that one? Yeah, so um, we have a, it's called a 1D model. So it's as if you're looking at one transect on, on Blakeney. Uh, from the seaward side into the landward side, and we input things like sediment size, um, what the shoreline looks like. We input wave conditions as if there was a storm taking place, and we can input different sea level rise. So uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has a series of scenarios, a low, mid and high scenario. So we input each of those scenarios to see what happens um, depending on whether we are able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And what we found was that the critical thing is that cross-sectional area of the barrier. Because if you have a low cross-sectional area, you get breaching uh, and the barrier uh, will find it more difficult to recover from that. Whereas if you have a high cross-sectional area, it can continue to roll landward whilst maintaining its essential form. And that means uh, in turn that sediment supply is going to be really important in the future. Because if we can, if we have sediments, then the barrier is more able to maintain its cross-sectional area. Um, so that's been a quite an interesting um, study. But of course, uh, there are also uncertainties that we can't account for. So when translating that to policy, um, I think it's important to say we know this, but also there are uncertainties related to geology, um, whether the marsh is also going to survive in response to sea level. Uh, whether the management will change, whether the politics will change. So it's one part of a broader puzzle. I think. It's like Donald Rumsfeld's known unknowns, <laughs> I think. Would A-level students be able to work on a model like that? Or is it far too complex? There are different levels. So you can... Um, this particular model that we're using is called uh, X-Beach uh, G. And the G stands for gravel because we're dealing with a gravel environment. Um and they do have a user interface where you can input things like uh, the bathymetry and the waves. I think it, it might take a, a little bit longer um, than you have in your A-level course to get to grips with. Um, but perhaps it's something that a teacher could set up and, and demonstrate for, for some students if it was something that they were particularly uh, interested in. Um, yeah, so it does have this kind of user-friendly interface. There used to be... <laughs> These are in the days of the BBC. The BBC computers we had at school, there used to be modelling that we could do where we would change the parameters of a slope. So mm. we could make it semi-arid or we could make it temperate. And because that changed the nature of the, the way that the slope would interact because of the sure. water flowed on it, you got different shapes. So you could create different valley shapes. And that was brilliant. And that was, what, 40 odd years ago. Um, and there are some good models out there, but I think, I, I still I come back to, I think we don't do enough of providing A-level students with the opportunity to do that sort of modelling, sure. to come up with their own conclusions, as long as they're effective conclusions, but also to understand this, this notion that you make a decision, David Lambert, the, the previous chief executive of the GA always used to talk about making decisions with confident uncertainty. So you've made that decision with all the facts that you've got, but just a minute, there are these unknowns as well. Mm. So you've made your decision now and you've justified it and it's a critical decision, but you might have to change your mind. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We, I think 
there's always going to be uncertainty. So you can't let the uncertainty stop you making a decision. Um, and it's just as you say, you've got to get to a level where you're reasonably confident in, in what you're um, going to decide. And there are policy mechanisms to do that in coastal management. And in general, uh, although you acknowledge the uncertainty, you say unless it changes that critical decision, um, it's okay for that uncertainty to remain, essentially. Coming back to the modelling, I think uh, geography, certainly when you get onto university, but also A-level, is a subject that teaches you how to deal with data. And there's a lot of uh, excitement at the moment around things like big data and uh, AI machine learning and these are all things that we can use to understand landscapes coastal landscapes and other landscapes so i think getting modeling even in a a demonstrative um, capacity into the a-level course would be a really nice uh, thing to be able to do i think i'm going to leave that one with you for the the (laughs) university to think about but it's certainly that uh, the the institute that that was fantastic getting getting mm. those models for the students to be able to see them. But I know there's a cost to it. And A-level students sure. have got to be brought, and if they were to be brought to you, then it's it's the area around the university. You can't travel from Sheffield to yes, see yeah, that sort of true. thing. But the other thing is, of course, that you can, you, can, you can video some of them, because I do think some of the clips I've seen recently uh, have been fantastic. But what would be nice would be not to just show the whole thing, Mm. but leave it with a gap or something so that sure. students can do some prediction. What's going to happen next? Where do we go from here? Yeah, what I think that is think? an interesting idea. And I don't know, some of the outreach that we do as locally um, with there's a Cambridge Science Festival and this sort of thing, we find that once you can show the students these things, it um, really sort of sparks the imagination and they ask really good questions and they challenge you. So... Um, yeah, I think people in universities do also have a responsibility to do things like video their work and share it um, more broadly. Well, that's the that's where the new knowledge is being created, isn't it? Um, it, it you've got to be careful at A-level. It doesn't fossilise because of the textbooks that you're using. Sure. And if textbooks are written by teachers, um, it, it, there's not necessarily any new knowledge coming in. And, and you're at the cutting edge of this, producing work that you wouldn't find in a in an A-level textbook. You find it here in, the, in geography and in other journals like that. So a teacher has to go out and look for them. Mm. Um, and then the next stage is to look at that and then think, how do I turn that into some A-level lessons? Sure. And that's quite tricky when you, you're under pressure too. But this has got the the makings of some fantastic inquiry learning. And I was flicking through the, the rest of the magazine as well, and it's really interesting. It's really sort of high-level um, stuff um, across the whole geographical discipline. So it's fantastic to see this kind of stuff being um, put out. Yeah, I do recommend all geography teachers, to the available at least, to get their hands on the geography journal and, uh, and, and see what's in there. And there's times when it's there are articles that, nowhere close to what you're doing but there are gems in like this one too well that was absolutely fascinating thank you very much james for coming in i think we'll wrap it up there thanks for listening everybody and i hope you're listening into the next job pod